On this episode of the podcast, I have with me a special roundtable. We're going to be talking to three senior VPs of engineering within the space of high growth startups. We're going to be talking about how they're focusing on hiring while retaining their talent. And we're going to dive into some subtopics. You guys are going to have to listen to this exactly what we cover because I'm not sure how far we're going to get with each of these bullets. They each could be episodes on their own. I am super pleased to have all three guests if you want, listen to their previous episodes. They've all been previous guests on the podcast. Hey, guys, thanks for being on the podcast. Excited Thank to be here. for inviting us. Awesome. So let's make sure everyone is familiar with both who you are and what the company does. Just a high level of yourself and the company, and then we'll dive in. David, why don't you uh, go ahead and kick things off for us? Sure. I'm David Ting. I'm SVP of Engineering and CISO for Nihilus. I currently run all product engineering initiatives for the company. So Nihilus lets company connect with, extract, and contextualize communication to inspire innovative experiences for customers and employees. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Oh, yeah. I'm Kirby Fourget, uh, SVP of Engineering here at Mural. A lot of people know Mural as an online whiteboard, but we see ourselves as a lot more than that. We really focus on how we can help organizations transform uh, how they do teamwork through visual collaboration, playful methods that make meetings more like games, you know, Providing facilitation, know-how, helping teams work smarter, faster, you know, killing the bad meetings and making it uh, really fun to work collaboratively together and solve real problems together through that. Awesome. Ken? Uh, I'm Ken. I'm the VP Engineering at Starburst Data. Starburst is a company that's based on the uh, Trino open source engine where we seek to be a single point of access for all, all your data. So... We basically leverage that by using Trino and then um, and not requiring like people to move or shift their underlying storage around. So, yeah. Awesome, guys. Super excited to have you on. And I guess the uh, the main theme of this roundtable, this podcast episode is focusing on your hiring, obviously, for your team, but also focusing on how you're going about retaining talent. It's a very competitive market. I guess let's start out at the top. I think one of the things that everyone that I'm hearing out there when they're going through the hiring is... That it's not just about bringing new people in. It's now about fending people off and making sure that you're retaining your current talent, you know, making sure you're not reactive. I guess if we're starting off as that as a topic, what I'd really be interested in understanding is what are you guys seeing in terms of being able to be a little closer to that? Hey, we'd like to make sure before somebody comes to us with an offer to potentially go through a counter that we understand who they are how to potentially go about you know, making sure they're happy, making sure that we're not being reactive just to offers then you know, potentially overpay when you could have done an incremental upgrade to salaries, you know, seniority titles, and all that kind of stuff. Let's use that as the, maybe the first you know, subtopic here. Ken, why don't you kick things off? For any engineering leader, I think uh, priority zero is retention, right? Like it's, it's hard to find great engineers. So if you have great engineers, you have to assume that everybody wants them as well, right? And so at the end of the day, you know, forming a cultural ecosystem where you assume that literally anybody could walk, especially in this market at any moment for any reason, if you really work backward from that and say, well, no, we have to make a great place to work. We have to have great benefits. We have to pay people fairly. We have to have a vision that we articulate, right? Like, I think you have to be defensible in all that because like the truth is if someone else has an offer, you've lost, you might retain them for a while, but you know, so the, the key is just keeping them from like, the recruiter inbound from responding to it, really, right? So, I totally agree with that. Like, I think it's really important to understand why somebody might be seeking another offer in the first place. Like, are they happy at your company? Why or why not? Are they engaged? 
do they like their manager? You know, are they are they feeling like they're doing impactful work that's meaningful? Uh, there's lots of reasons people might be looking for offers, but I think we all also though experienced last year the salary increase that went on in in our field, and that was a real thing. And people were getting lots of money thrown at them even when they weren't looking for offers. And so, like last year, for example, we recognized that, and then we reviewed our compensation, which we do regularly anyway, but. You know, we were pretty aggressive with our salary at that time to make it not even a thing that people would think about. You know, we feel like we have a great place to work and it's rarely about that when people leave, but we also don't want it to be about money. And so I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of waiting for people to leave before upping their pay. But I think it's better to be proactive about that and make sure you're paying competitively and that people are having a great experience there to begin with. So. I agree with a lot with what Ken was saying on this one. Yeah. And then for me, I think Ken and Kirby actually cover it all. We have to do all of this. So I'll just dig into one aspect of how to make your workplace special, because I do think like that's a topic on itself, right? So first of all, when we interview, we want to make sure that there's a match. Uh, basically, uh, we want to have people with similar passion, building things that they're passionate about. And our mission is something that resonates with them. Second is, is that we're very much a communication-driven and async work culture. So we actually test that proactively within our interview process. So in addition to the typical tech screen, we actually test the ability to communicate an idea, solve a difficult problem, and simulate a work experience through it. And number three is, is that we have a culture of challenging everyone to do their best. So when we plan, we actually really push everyone to their limit. So when we do OKRs, we really try to push the engineer to be creative and to be uncomfortable. And with it actually come with a lot of invention and progress. And we found that by doing meaningful work, as both uh, Kirby and Ken has said, that really actually allows to retain. So most of our team, we actually have 97% retention across the company. And on engineering, most of our teams are at 100% retention. So it's a uh, even though there's a great resonation, we're relatively unaffectedly, fortunately. Interesting. I guess what you would talk about, you know, culture. I mean, this obviously bleeds into employee engagement, making sure people you understand the needs. With whole teams still being remote, potentially, uh, at least for the last year, how does that factored into the employee engagement? Again, you know, the culture piece to understand your employees so that you're aware of what they need, what they want before it's too late. So maybe I'll go first to get a touch on the, my last answer. And uh, well, we'll basically uh, daisy chain through the responses. So for us, it's uh, really like that async. So anybody can work anytime they want. And we measure impact and velocity systematically as a whole, like seeing how fast we do burn down the story points, et cetera, across. So when there's a performance issue, we see it, but we trust everybody. And we look for anomalies and reports and have conversation, meaningful one-on-ones to do so. So with that, we basically give that flexibility for anybody to be anywhere. And people actually took advantage of it. I have a few employees actually move around every week. So they stay in Airbnb, different cities every week. Cool. And I think it's really important when you're all remote that you think about how you can keep people feeling connected to each other. It's easy to underestimate when people are in a physical space how important the lunch is, how important just like walking by people in a hallway is. And so we invest a lot in helping people feel more connected. So, you know, intentionally designing meetings, uh, spending a lot of time thinking about 
how can we get the outcome that we want from that, you know, session that people have together versus just thinking about, okay, we got a meeting, let's go talk to each other. And so, you know, we have an advantage at Mural that the product that we deliver and the the methods in which people use it, we apply those internally to ourselves. So, you know, every big meeting where we need to get people together, we essentially do certain types of icebreakers that get people like starting to think and feel like there's other people on the other side of it. And so we spend a whole lot of time just working on how people can stay connected despite the fact that they're not physically connected together and trying to be very deliberate about that because I feel like part of why people leave is they don't make those bonds with each other that they might make otherwise. And well, how do you do that when you're remote? You have to design it and you have to think about how to do that very intentionally. And so that occupies a huge space in my mind. And I know it occupies a huge space in the minds of the other leaders here is how can we just get people to feel like they're part of something together and working directly together? Absolutely. And I think, I mean, uh, Starburst accelerated during the pandemic, right? So pre-COVID, there were about 30 employees and you know now we're about 350 uh, employees. And so we've had to grow up as a business dealing with the reality of not just remote, but COVID remote, right? Because I think there is, like, you can be remote first and still physically see people in person. You can gather in one place. And so we have started now that, you know, um, more more people are vaccinated and boosted. And, you know, we are trying to actually meet. And in a lot of cases for the first time and see each other face to face, because it's been really hard. And there's tons of things you can do like in terms of like zoom engagements and and a lot of stuff you can do with Slack and and fostering one-to-one communications and those sorts of things. But I'll be honest, like very few things actually like foster like team cohesion, like meeting somebody for dinner or over a beer, or, you know, we we opened our Boston office finally. and, And like, I never thought I would deeply appreciate like walking into an office building again, but I was like, this is special, you know? And so I think we're all trying to, and you know, I mean, but we have people all over the world and we're still trying to figure and feel that out. But I think really like, for me, it's, I had to differentiate between what our go forward remote first strategy is versus like the things we sort of had to limp by and do because of COVID. And so I think it forced us to really think about it and be intentional about it, but I'm looking forward to like what happens post pandemic and what we're able to do. Yeah, I think one of the benefits of this has been now we're thinking about this stuff a lot more than we were before, whether it is remote or hybrid or you're back in the office like you were. Even going back in, I bet, you know, Ken, you're thinking a lot more about it than you were prior to all of this just because we've had to, you know, out of necessity. Absolutely. Like, I don't know if we would have been a remote first company if not for the pandemic, right? Like it completely transformed our business in a completely different direction. And I think for the better because we're able to hire the best talent we can globally. But without the events of the last two years, I'm not sure we ever would have made that decision. And I guess before that, when you guys would speak to someone who asked to be remote, you know, maybe you made an exception and it would be the outlier. And that person, interestingly, would always ask, is anyone else remote? Or how are they going to incorporate me? And then fast forward, as you mentioned, Ken, two years, it's now just everyday you know, common occurrence. And the one thing that always came up with that person when you talk to the people you know, a couple of years ago that want to be remote was the concept of, well, how am I really going to be integrated? And from integration points, I think the next thought is, is where are the safe spaces for those people? Because obviously when you're remote as executives and managers and leaders, you guys can't see the staff as you're potentially walking by them. And that person might have to you know, schedule a Zoom to do that or whatever it is. But how do you guys go about making sure you know that engagement, the safe spaces where people can feel comfortable to share, you know, potentially uncomfortable 
you know, topics with you. How, how is everyone dealing with that? You know, I don't think my management style has changed, but I do think that I talk a lot more and ask a lot more questions, right? Because it's a lot harder to read social signals and understand people. So I think it's being actually even more transparent or asking more kinds of leading questions to figure out how people are doing, you know? I think everything has to be sort of transactional and intentional in a Zoom universe because you lose everything outside this little tiny box that I'm looking into right now. And you lose all of the social context of who interacts with who and who works with who and who doesn't work with who. And, you know, and so I think the only way that I've dealt with it is actually being, I would say, intentional about forming a connection. Basically saying like, we should talk more and we should discuss our feelings about this particular situation. In a way that you wouldn't really do if you're in an office and someone came by with a beer and was like, I want to talk to you for a bit about, you know, because those moments don't exist in the COVID universe. You have to like almost, I don't know if artificial is the right word, but you have to intentionally create those moments with your staff. For me, adding on to what Ken said, we actually try to program everything, create programs around it. So it's a standard rollout. So we had two challenges. One is the hyper growth. So when I started at the beginning of 2020, we had 20 engineers. Now we have 200. So one of the things that we had to think about constantly is, is that processes are broken just by time. What used to work is not working today. So we intentionally meet on a weekly basis and we have this as a subject and we do an offsite every quarter as a leadership team. We do surveys with the employees and try to understand our meeting useful, not useful, and get the feedback to calibrate and change the format, change the topic, and constantly iterating to make it more useful. The other aspect of it is, is that we felt like certain programs are extremely important for retention, so I'll talk through that. So we have a couple of innovation. One is that we have a peer recognition program for engineering all hands. So we encourage people like somebody help me and pair code with me, solve this problem. We actually talk about that at the same level as somebody actually did a great project where latency got improved by order of magnitude. So I think like that social aspect, you get that social recognition in addition to like the technical accomplishment. And I find like that sense of belonging is great. Lastly, the celebration. So we mindfully celebrate at a good period. So we have basically team level socials that are on a weekly basis. I try to pop in once in a while. We basically have quarterly OKR celebration where the entire team get together and we try to do some online games or just really like going to a poker room. We used to something called Gather Town. And yesterday we did a virtual escape room and just really get people to engage and interact in different level, different ways. So those are some of the things that we do. And I'll add, you asked a bit about psychological safety, and I think that's really, really critical. I mean, it's really critical in an office or remote, but at the heart of that is really trust. And one of the things I've realized a lot over the last couple of years is that trust does not come for free. I mean, so it sounds obvious, but it's absolutely the case in a remote world. You know, one of the things that I value is that our management team works consistently to improve the craft of management at a company like they should be thinking about that and thinking about how to make us better and better and better and so we try to organize things where the managers are just connecting that might be people they don't normally work with and i realized early on we tried to be a little too tactical with that and so we've really been working on how do we just get people to get to know each other because at the heart of trust is actually just knowing each other right as human beings and so 
a lot of what we try to focus on and you know in engineering we've hired someone who helps with our culture we've hired communications people so like roles that may not exist in traditional engineering organizations but we intentionally have hired those roles here because it's so critically important for that trust to be built so that people can talk to each other and that psychological safety is more likely to be there. Obviously, things like risk-taking and all of that kind of factor into psychological safety as well. But just like building on a foundation of trust, I think is critically important. Absolutely. I guess, you know, along the lines of employee engagement, you know, obviously making sure that you're retaining your own talent, just out of curiosity, when it comes to actual managing people so that we can you know, obviously have the right feedback loops in place, you know, with the pandemic, uh, everyone being remote, have you seen a need for more engineering managers to help cover that? Or has that actually gotten to the point where you might be able to have, you know, engineering managers carry larger pods or squads just because they are remote? David, do you want to take that one to start? Sure. We're scaling very quickly. So when we look at it, we basically train on leadership. So we basically have a learning and training program. They basically grow leadership within the team. And then we try to grow from within, but we also try to keep the ratio. There's just not enough people. People actually really like to code. So we actually have to actually hire some external leaders as well. And when we hire external leaders, we're looking for people who are diverse, think differently, to bring additional DNA into the organization. So very thoughtful and try to do that holistically as a team from both an engineering perspective as from a leadership perspective. Are you seeing you having to hire more just because I guess everyone's remote and trying to, you know, handle, you know, I guess over communication per can or, you know, building the trust and the way Kirby mentioned, are you having to see a higher layer of engineering managers? Are you guys able to see the team, you know, be able to handle more people in a pod because they aren't having to deal with the office stuff? Yeah. So for us, I actually noticed that we're able to keep the same ratio. Okay. So just to share the ratio, it's about eight to one. So eight to 10 to one. So really like uh, what we try to do because we have to plan ahead. So it basically start with a small team of four and they basically hire and basically grow the team. And then for us, going back to that, what that structure and thoughtful program, getting those documented is key. So for us, like getting that structure basically standardized across the team, how you communicate, how you actually set up your project, how do we measure project, how we standardize burn down, how do we communicate risk? Because once you actually standardize communication overhead where there's less trying to learn different system, it's everything's calibrated. I actually found it more efficient for me to actually work remotely than to actually come to the office. So I do that like once every quarter when I go to the office. I actually, uh, so this is not my first growth journey. And so I usually introduce engineering managers later than I did at Starburst. Usually I kind of like work with skilled directors and put some of like the people management burden on the tech leads for a while, because I find like there's a lot of, I would say somewhat a moderate amount of inefficiency with bringing in a new layer of management. Right. And so, but I found pretty rapidly that the dealing with the number of geographies that we do, like we work across, we work from California to Poland and we still have people in, you know, in Japan and, and India and a bunch of other places that it just, it was kind of unmanageable to do that pattern here. So we brought in engineering management pretty early. You know, and dealt with, I'd say, the additional complexity of another layer of management, just because I felt it was necessary to, to help like bring in new people. There was just too much operational burden on the existing staff to continue pushing the charter forward and handle some of the operational side of things. So 
I definitely modified my plan for Starburst. Just to add on to that, it's very situational, right? I think as we're more remote, yes, you get some efficiencies and people can focus more and all that. But at the same time, communication gets harder. And particularly in scaling, we scaled our team very, very, very rapidly over the last couple of years. And the amount of communication that's needed for people to stay connected and for them to understand when you've scaled and added, you know, I think we have like a large number of engineering teams, product design engineering teams now. And to make sure that what we're doing organizationally is aligned in all of the teams while allowing them to like move in an autonomous fashion requires a great deal of communication. And so to me, one of the key roles of the engineering manager is translating what's going on within the company to what's going on within the team and vice versa and making sure that there is good alignment and that people understand, especially as you're growing, the impact that your role has. There's a key role for managers to play in that because engineers, you know, they're not just about writing code. They care a lot about being connected with what they're doing to some mission, you know, that you're on there. And it's easy to lose sight of that, particularly as you scale. And so I think having a management layer is very critical, but again, it is situational. And we have a similar ratio to David. David, I think you said eight to one. I typically say eight plus or minus two, given the complexity of the team, the complexity of the work, the experience of the manager, et cetera. Awesome. I guess, you know, we're talking about, you know, hyper growth. I mean, all three of you guys are working for companies that are just, you know, growing really fast. And I guess when it comes to hiring and obviously, you know, asking the team to be involved in the hiring process, you got to have people interviewing constantly, especially in this market. I guess balancing your team's time and being able to kind of do the work, they obviously have to still produce, but also have to spend some cycles interviewing. How do you guys budget that time? I guess, Kirby, do you want to start first? Yeah, uh, it's critically important, right? We're in an environment of hyper growth, but also hyper competition, right? Which means we have to ship fast. It's one of our number one things we focus a lot on is we have a program, I think I talked last time about uh, Ship Now is the program we run to ship fast, but release quality stuff. And so you want your engineers working on shipping stuff <laughs> as much as possible. But you also know, and they know that they need more people to be able to do that effectively. And so you have to find that balance. I think it's helpful to think about how you can make that process as engineer focused as possible. And so how can they make their experience one where you know, they've been really well trained on it. They know what questions they're going to be asking. We do unconscious bias training. We have you know standard interview questions that people go through and processes that people go through. So it's like a repeatable thing. It's not having to do a lot of preparation and a lot of invention each time. It's a standard thing. And once they're trained, they can run through that you know fairly well. We also pay a lot of attention. We have a lot of data on our hiring process. We pay a lot of attention to how many people get through which stages and making sure that. I consider engineers' time way more precious than managers' time, for example. Sorry if I'm offending managers out there, but I would much rather you know, have a candidate fail at a manager than have them fail at an engineer part of the process because I want you know, a much higher number of engineers to pass that part of the process once they're talking to an engineer. If they're doing 10 interviews for one hire... That's a huge use of the engineer's time that is not a valuable use of the engineer's time. And so we spend a lot of time. We have a great talent acquisition team here at Mural, and we spend a lot of time just talking with them, improving the process, 
helping make sure that everybody's use of time throughout the process is valuable. And so we invest, you know, fairly heavily in our hiring process and try to minimize the impact on engineers as much as possible. We've also done things like making sure that, you know, I don't know if you've read the article Maker's Time versus Manager's Time. It's a great one. Go read that. Just search that if you haven't on Google. Because engineers being interrupted is very expensive. And so we try to orient when interviews enter an engineer's calendar in a more controlled fashion, for example. Things like that matter a lot. I agree with, with everything Kirby said. I also use automation. So I have an automation step in between recruitment screen and like talking to like an engineering manager or an engineering leader. Uh, and I also ascribe to the many hands make light work strategy of like getting more interviewers involved and trained. So, you know, we do a pretty intricate like shadowing and reverse shadowing and, you know, really kind of nailing down like criteria and those sorts of things, because, you know, the simple truth is I try to limit how many interviews an engineer has to do a week. And, and I do let them set their timing windows onto when they want to do them. But I also need adequate coverage. And, and the easiest way to do that is to get as many people as is comfortable doing interviews for your company. So, yeah, I mean, if people aren't doing like an interviewing training strategy and they're trying to grow, they should absolutely get on that immediately. Do that as quickly as is humanly possible. Yeah, I think Kirby and Ken cover all the key points. So I just have one little addition. So we review like all the pipeline statistics on a weekly basis as part of the management team. So we have a talent acquisition team as well. So they join my staff meeting. And one of the key things that we try to get are basically kind of like MPS score, understanding like if the interview experience is good. And second is, is the velocity of the pipeline. So rather basically being tougher grader in the early stages, so like people actually calibrate the phone screen to reject more so that we basically conserve time on the later stage of the process. The other aspect of it is, is I try to explain the why. I always think about 50% of the team is new. So I try to drill home like, Talent is key. Hiring is key. Think about the team with the people you're going to bring in. So basically understand the growth is key to meet the objective of their OKR. So that hiring is inherently embedded into their daily execution. So the team is actually pretty motivated. So I show the Dubai example. I spent about a third of my time hiring, recruiting, networking, and then using that to basically let the leaders know, like, this is how you get talent, great talent onto the team. Yeah, no, just to add on to that, engineers want to work with great engineers and they want to know who they're going to be working with and that they're going to have a good working relationship. So it's one of those kind of necessary things that do engineers love interviewing? No, I mean, they'd much rather be writing code, but they love working with great people and they love having a say in who they're going to work with and they love looking for people that they can learn from that can help better the team and that they can really count on. So it's it's one of those things that's tough to balance and you just got to kind of work your way through it too. We always call about start with the why. So when you actually talk about this is getting you a stronger team, then all of a sudden the engineers want to write the job description versus the managers have to do it, right? So going back to Kirby's point, they want great teammates and they also want to have skill coverage that they don't currently have. They can see it as a solution versus like a job. Like they have to do this because David asked them to do so. Totally. We also benefit enormously from the open source aspect of our project. I don't know if you, uh, you guys run open source programs, but like, you know, you have a community of people that are using and contributing your software. There is no better way to actually like see what a person's code quality is and like reviewing PRs for the open source, right? And so, like, you know, it's a built-in sort of pipeline that just sort of keeps feeding into the company to a certain point. Very cool. I think those are some 
great points. And I guess, you know, to tie into that, obviously, we heard, you know, try to reject sooner, you know, worry about the engineer's times, uh, many hands make for light work. I guess when you guys are starting to look, and especially in this market in the last year, it's been uber competitive. When it comes to actually, you know, hiring for a particular position, are you looking at it from the standpoint of I need certain hard skills or do I widen the net to bring different types of people in and kind of fit them to different roles? Because obviously, you know, the, the more senior we get, the more refined the type of person in terms of you're looking for. But, you know, there might be some must-haves that you're willing to be flexible on, especially from a technical perspective. And I guess that's become a big battle of just understanding what you have to have versus what you're okay passing up on. Yeah, I mean, there's, of course, like some must-haves, right? People have to have technical skills that you're looking for. They have to meet, you know, be great fits for the company that can help add to your culture that are people that you, again, want to work with. But it's also important to, you know, I, I think, David, you mentioned this earlier, diversity is an important factor in this. And we spend a lot of time trying to create a more diverse candidate pool. And we're not where we want to be on that but we are trending in a very positive direction on diversity. I think we hired something like 44% women uh, last month. And I've seen it increasing month over month over month. And we invest a lot in that. And so an interesting topic on diversity, we were having a conversation in my staff about, you know, we, we might have somebody great that's coming in. Should we just hire them or should we wait until the pool gets full and we can do some, you know, focus on making sure that we are both improving our diversity, but also making sure we're seeing enough candidates. And one of my directors, Laura said, you know, like you can say on your team, I want to get enough candidates in this poll to make sure that we're seeing a representative group. And so we've really started to focus on setting goals and standards for diversity and making sure that our managers feel like they are partnering with our talent acquisition team, both to get more people in the pipeline, but also make sure that the pipeline is sufficiently filled with a diverse range of candidates and that we can make you know great additions to our team from that. And so we're spending a lot more time now, especially making sure that the candidates have what we need and what we want and that they're going to make our team stronger more than just like butts and seats, right? Like it's really important that you get the right talent on your team that's going to take you where they need to take you versus... You know, it's a tough market. We got somebody that's adequate. Let's just hire them on the team. It's like, no, you need to find the talent that's going to make your team great. And I think that's even more important remote. And it's even more important in hyper growth that you're getting the right candidates versus, you know, it's a tough market. Let's hire what we can hire. Maybe I'll jump in real quickly on the diversity part. Absolutely agree with Kirby. So we basically use analytics to going back being data driven. We look at if we have discrimination in an interview process, so we actually go through it, look through different stages, make sure like there's no bias. Second is, is that we know our weaknesses is sourcing. I know this because I went to university, very few female in my major. You have to work extra hard to get that balance, right? So I, that 40% is huge. So Kirby, you, you're putting us to shame. So I'll bring that, that back to my staff and we basically will learn from Mural. And we can get better too, right? We're tracking, just like you're saying, David, tracking the data is important. It's an important step in that process because then you know where your where your issues are and you can focus on it. And then on the other side is, is I believe quality versus quantity as well. So I'd rather have 60 head on the STBHs 
And I actually believe in like high output organization is means like high quality employees. So we tend to skew a bit senior in our profile. So that's why I mentioned a little bit, like I spend time networking because a lot of the time, like people we want are not people who are looking for jobs. So that's why when you're looking at how you spend your time, instead of only depending on talent acquisition team, I do speaking engagement like this one. So that, and then also go to a lot of, uh, do a lot of speaking roles, go to meetings, meetups, and then just try to meet people, encourage my management team to do so as well. And this is a lot of times that we find like dormant candidates that we're not looking really buy into our mission and join us. And that's sometimes how we find the hidden gems for ourselves. Absolutely. And in addition to the diversity stuff, I think it's one of the things that I try to screen for is not just competency, but a desire to be like a master of their craft, right? Like no matter what level they are, right? Either they are already or they seek to be, right? They have the passion and desire and willingness to be great at what they do. And the other thing Starburst really tries to focus on is like hiring people, I think, of good character. Like character is actually very important as our corporate identity and aligning around, you know, the values that we set up because tying into some of the other concepts about being remote first and, and actually being intentional about that. The only way you really get to that is incorporating that in all phases of, of your process, which includes, absolutely includes recruiting, hiring, and onboarding. So, and making that intentional about it, like I, I'd say every phase after that, but I, I find it like the number of times I think that you really have to like look at a candidate and say, they're great, but like, do they embody ownership or do they embody authenticity, right? Some of their answers, I didn't really think like, were more like a blame focused than collaborative, right? And so because people are, so on their own now in this sort of remote first universe, like the character side, I think matters even more now that you feel like you're bringing in somebody that, that resonates with the ideals of the company. I was curious to ask each of you, uh, I've never asked this, so I, I'm curious, uh, what percentage of your time is spent on the talent acquisition and hiring on a given week? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, I already covered it a third of my time. It bursts for me. So when I'm actively recruiting, it can be Usually between 20 to 35%, somewhere in there, at least a day a week. If I'm not doing at least a day a week, then I consider myself not focusing enough on it. If I got some important candidates coming through or important roles that I'm hiring, it's on the high end. And even if I'm not personally hiring a direct person on my staff, I'm talking to the recruiting team, we're looking at the data where, you know, it's such an important thing that it's a significant commitment. Hiring great talent is one of the most important things we do as leaders. So it's worth the commitment. And it's 100% bursty for me too. I just closed a senior director. My screen for a senior director is like 90 minutes, which is like a very long amount of time to block out on my calendar. So like it was intense. I just got up a very intense period in my life. But yeah, no, I mean, I think every engineering leader has to spend, I'd say what, 25 to 35% of their time recruiting because I mean... Finding talent, identifying talent, and building talent is a huge part of the job, you know, especially in this environment, you know, like the competitiveness in the market right now, it's even more time. The only thing I would say too is focusing on your employer branding. David we sort of brought that up is like, no, you got to get out to meetups. There is very few things in this universe that is more productive than boots on the ground in this market. Just one little addition here. I actually spend my time at least 30% because I actually help my team close. So that's actually a critical aspect being a leader is to actually be there to sell it, to talk about the value, talk about the vision. 
and let the candidates hear themselves. So we actually have a ranking of all of the, like the most wanted, like a draft board. So I tried to actually, this is how I actually can consistently burst about 30%. I spent about a third amount of time and a lot of times helping my team close the critical positions. Awesome. Awesome. And you know, we've been talking about the hiring process and retaining talent. I guess you know one final piece to maybe chat about is you know when you have to make an offer. I think a lot of this is organizationally how you know one organization approaches it. It's just a lot more art than science. I'm sure you guys might have metrics to kind of talk about. But when it comes to offer strategy, obviously you have candidates, different cycles, different stages of interviewing. You know, when do you make the offer? How long are you willing to leave it out there? How long are you waiting to, you know, willing to wait for somebody to finish all their interviews before you you want your decision? But I guess that's a wide area that we can kind of dive into as our last uh, topic. Ken, did you want to start that off? Uh, sure. I mean, I spend a lot of time articulating the offer and the close because we are an option backed venture startup, right? And so, like having to explain our compensation structure when people are dealing with like Google and RSUs and it's a very nuanced close. And so I, for me, I believe our offers are great, but you have to know how to articulate and explain it and train everybody from recruitment to the rest of the company as to how to value the compensation package and talk about it. Because like it just, people have so many offers these days that like you have to understand how not just your offer matches up against like total comp of like other companies is similar to you, but, but how do you compare to like the fangs of the universe or how you compare to like, or even like the mid-tiers of like a, a Databricks or a Confluent or a Snowflake, we see a ton, right? So what does that mean? And so for me, like a lot of it is the articulation of the offer that's the most important. I don't play games on timing and stuff like that. If people want to negotiate or talk more, like I, you know, I give them what I think is a fair offer and we can flex on certain things. Like if they want more equity or want more, I mean, like we can adjust it as appropriate. But like for me, the, the most important thing is understanding how to quantify your compensation relative to everybody else's in this kind of ecosystem. I actually believe in velocity and everything. So we do have offer expiration that we hold to. For people who excelled in our interview, and this means like ace the process, we actually give a little bit more lenience. But for people who are average in the parts, we basically do not give exception. What we looked at, and this is actually a very data-driven decision, what we found is that people, when they took their time, got their 20 offers or so, negotiate every single thing, they tend to be very financially driven. So they tend not to stay if the company's not doing well. You do not want that, right? You want a mission-driven team that basically are coming in to build a great company together. So we look at that as part of the factor here. So I'd rather close at a lower rate and use that as part of the selection process. So that's something that we do intentionally. I think can cover everything else, a lot of tips and tricks there. So it's really like, uh, I'll just make a joke here. Like every engineer we try to close becomes our venture capitalist. They ask even harder questions our VC ask us in our fundraise, right? So you basically have to be prepped in a sell session to actually talk about like financial IPO trajectory, timing, all of these things and it'll be very, very good at it. So it's almost like uh, you're ready to be interviewed before you go into IPO. That's how I prep for my cell session. <laughs> yeah, I think kind of to add on to that too, it's really important to know your candidates very, very well. What motivates them? Why are they talking to you? Why would they want to join your company to begin with? And to be having that conversation at every step along the process from the initial recruiter screen through your engineers interviewing them, the manager talking to them, 
because I'm going to quote a, like a sales line here, but always be closing, right? Like, like you need to be thinking about that throughout the entire process and adjusting to what the candidate is looking for. Like, I think if you've gotten to the offer stage and you're not closing quickly on it, then you probably haven't done a good enough job throughout that process to close them to begin with. Like, Obviously, there's candidates that are going to have multiple offers. And if you're trying to hire the best, it's going to be a big chunk of those candidates that have multiple offers. But hopefully, you've closed them and you're reasonable on the comp kind of all the way throughout that. We do also set a timer on the offers. And I think it's also helpful for the candidate because, you know, it can be hard to decide. Like, I've been in that place before too. And if you have 50 different things sitting in front of you, Sometimes it's nice actually to have a bit of a forcing function and be like, okay, I need to make a decision on this. So I actually find it helpful. And it also does kind of weed out some of the people that are shopping around. Because also during the rate resignation, we saw some people that are leveraging the process to increase their salary at their current companies. We saw more of that than we saw prior to that as well. And so But again, to me, it all comes back to the candidate experience and knowing your candidate kind of throughout the process and knowing what's going to motivate them. And yeah, like to what Ken said too, being at our stage of a company, it's complicated conversations uh, too, because it's not just, you know, what's your salary? There's a whole lot more to it. It's, you know, what do you expect the company to do? And, you know, what is the recent valuation? It's a complicated thing. And we have our, um, Yvette is our uh, head of talent acquisition and she's really good at that part of the conversation. So as soon as it gets detailed, we're like, send in Yvette. (laughs) She knows how to have that conversation, but she's also trained all of our people on how to have those conversations because it is really important that everybody understands how that works. Awesome. I was just thinking, uh, if any of your sales teams are you know listening to this podcast, they're going to be thinking, "Hey, I can bring one of these three guys in. They can close anytime I need because they're dancing really hard to close on their side." So, I think everyone's now seeing that. I know uh, you all are super busy. You took time out to be on. I could not thank you enough uh, for being on this uh, roundtable. I appreciate it. I'll make sure everyone's links are out on the show notes so that if anybody wants to contact any of you in terms of LinkedIn or the company for opportunities or anything like that. So that's always going to be available, but I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks. Appreciate it. Awesome. That's it for the episode. We'll be back again. Hopefully we'll do this with another group of individuals on a different topic. We'll come back with that to you guys. In the meantime, if you like the podcast episode, please share it. That's how it's been growing. And secondly, if you do want me to find a group to talk about a specific topic, let me know. I'll do my best. Until next time. Thanks. Goodbye. Thank you.